Good evening, everyone. Welcome to October 6th Board of Trustees Finance Committee meeting. We will call this meeting to order with a roll call. Trustee Blue. Here. Trustee Esteem. Here. Trustee Fox. Here. Trustee Friedman. Here. Trustee Splendorio. And I apologize, but I'm going to leave after 15 minutes because it's my wife's birthday. I'm sorry, you're all important to me, but not as important as she is. <laughs> Thank you. We do have a quorum. Thank you. Thank you for attending uh, in an abbreviated fashion, Splend. Um, next, we will move into the first item, which is approval of the agenda. And just before that, do we have any public comment tonight? No one has reached out to me for public comment yet. All right. Thank you so much. Do we have any objections or uh, changes we need to the agenda? And if we do not, can I get a motion for approval? Move approval. Second. All right. May we have a roll call vote? Yes. For To approve the minutes of September 1, um, Trustee Blue. Aye. Trustee Esteem. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Friedman. Aye. Trustee Splendoria. Aye. The motion passes. Thank you. Thank you. Now we'll move into item B1, our Chief Financial Officer report. Hey, thank you. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. All right. Can everybody see my screen okay? Mm -hmm. All right. If I can get it to advance. All right, so here's the volume statistics. I uh, just want to make a couple of points here. Our uh, patient days are really close uh, to budget, a little off uh, in August, but really pretty close, 1.1% off year to date. And just as a reminder, our budget was based on pre-COVID volumes. So really good sign on the acute days. Um, our discharges were down, which is an indicator of a longer length of stay at 5.9 versus a budget of 5.4. Um, year to date, not as long, 5.7. In August, we struggled a bit because our CMI was actually below budget, whereas year to date, we're above. So uh, August uh, was difficult for us in regard to length of stay. Our... Um, other volumes here, um, there's some service mix bright spots I want to point out. One, our ED volume, we're 6.2% off, 6.6 year-to-date. So August was pretty busy. Traumas were also up. Keep in mind, we were off like 20%, and we were off that much just as recently as the end of the fiscal year. So we have really come back quite a bit in the ED area. And then if you look over here at surgeries, particularly outpatient, we're still off 13.9%, but look at where we were last month, 20% and 60% last year. So we're really seeing a nice positive trend in more surgeries. In our uh, skilled nursing, 
Um, our daily discharges are down quite a bit this month, 16%, 13.9 year to date. Um, and that's being driven primarily with the COVID isolations uh, necessary and some complex patients that, you know, we can't uh, share rooms. In addition to that, we've got um, uh, two beds that are out of service for seismic work at Alameda. And we had a COVID outbreak in August at Park Bridge and Fairmont, which prevented some admissions. So we're thinking this will pick back up. Our clinic visits were off for the first time in a long time. And that is driven by some vacancies in our primary care providers. And also August, just because of the number of days in the month, we had a high budget. So it's a high watermark for the number of visits, and then we had the vacancies, which uh, definitely impacted performance, and I'll show you that in just a minute. So if I look at our overall results for the month, we did have a net income. It was a loss of $1,564,000. Um, that is a positive variance to budget of 600000 And I want to point out that... Um, we haven't had net income. We had we had a good month in uh, July also, so two months in a row with net income. But if I look at the entire fiscal year last year, if I back out the money we got from CARES, we did not have net income. And then if I go back even to the prior year before that, FY20, if I break, break out the ACER adjustment and CARES there in April 2020, we only had two months. So really nice to see I, don't, I can't call two months a trend but that is just it's a really positive sign here EBITDA um, is at 2.3 so we brought in some cash flow also year-to-date 4.2 but unfortunately we are trailing behind budget so here's the revenue slide. And as I, as I mentioned, the uh, volumes are really driving this and you can see it here. You know, we're really close on an inpatient basis, just like we were on days, although discharges were, were not quite where we wanted them to be. The outpatient, that service mix of the happening in the ED and in um, the surgeries is really helping us here. So we got a nice positive variance. On the professional fees, unfortunately for this month, we're down. Um, we were not down as much last month. So we, we've got some vacancies and some holes we need to, to close there. In regard to the net patient service revenue, we're really close. We're not, we're not far off at all. I'd like to see this a little bit higher, and I think that this will recover a bit. I think it, some of it is just timing um, on, uh, in our ZBA model. As we start seeing some of this uh, service mix pick up, I think this will uh, get closer to budget. Uh, good news here, we did get some tobacco money, and also the retail pharmacy. Um, they've been doing well for quite a few months now, uh, and it's being driven by these scripts for rheumatology and some other oral oncology medications. They were positive 400 and a million year-to-date, so very uh, good results there. On the uh, expense side, we'll talk about labor in a minute. There's not really a whole lot of other variances, mostly just timing. Um, materials and supply is negative here, uh, 601 million. And that 
is being driven by the pharmaceutical expenses. You know, we have to pay for those drugs that we sell. So that's really the, the biggest variance. We're also seeing um, some lab reagents uh, more than we had budgeted for COVID. Um, so that's really it other than labor. And if I look at labor, we've got quite a bit going on. Um, our current month, if you net salaries in registry, we're actually favorable by 0.4. Really good news. And I have to say I was a bit concerned because last month we were negative when you combine these two by 1.5 million. And what's driving this is in the current month, we are 58 FTE positive. Year to date, we were actually negative due to July in our FTEs. And we are struggling with overtime. Uh, we still have a lot of COVID um, absences and having to have to use a lot of high cost registry because the, the need is everywhere in the country and it makes it much more expensive to bring people in. Um, other than that here, if you look at our benefits, they were positive this month. Uh, last month, I mentioned that we uh, were quite a bit over on our claims. While they did come back down this month, we, we do do a trending. It may not look like that over the last two months, but we do trend them. We don't just, you know, we do, it a, we do a cruel accounting, not cash accounting. But uh, the good news is year to date, it put it, this positive variance put us pretty much back in line where we needed to be. And my next slide is the trend line. Um, it's unfortunate that it's continuing, you know, to go up when our volumes really aren't going up. But you can see here last month where we went over budget and then now you see the vacancy factor, if you will, there were us being quite a bit below budget. Um, and again, I leave this here just because with the COVID leaves, we saw a lot of a lot higher paid FTEs. In fact, our high point had 195.6 FTEs out in December. That's that high point. So I figured I, I I need to give you a little more history and and keep bringing you know rolling this forward. I think I'm going to add some kind of a volume stat to this as well. Next slide is new. This is the balance sheet and. Uh, Trustee Fox had mentioned uh, some of the uh, netting of some of these balance sheet numbers with the county. And I thought, well, I, I probably should have this in my financial report or else in this deck. So I have it here now. I don't know that I'll include it every month, but I will always put it in my written report. I think it's, uh, I think it's, a, it's important to see the whole balance sheet besides just, you know, in the uh, financial report. The stats down here are the same as I've been reporting every month. I didn't change those this time. The only comment I really want to make here is on this working capital loan. This is considered long term. Uh, and it says 37 here and I'm reporting 11.7. So 53 last month, 27 seven and 41 last at the end of 21 versus the uh, 16. And I just thought I ought to explain that. Um, what that is, is uh, reserve funds, 25,000 that I have up here in cash that is reflected um, 
against this working line of credit with the county. So Ann and I are looking at that to try to figure out how we could make it a little bit uh, clearer. The actual um, amount on the line of credit is what I'm reporting down here. So that's not that it's been inaccurate. It's just the way we reported in the balance sheet. My next slide here is the same slide that I typically have. And I put my comments here. Uh, days in AR continue to go down. It's just not, it's, uh, was 56.9 to 55.5. Um, the days in accounts payable, uh, typically we're pretty much been on target because we haven't had any issues not having funding on our line of credit. So we're pretty current. We did see the over 60 jump up quite a bit and we're working on this. What drove it is there were some credits that we needed to apply to invoices on some of with for some of our vendors and we got that cleaned up and then uh, as a result of those credits being gone we saw this kind of pick up so our team's working on this because we really do want to see this lower we don't want to have a lot of uh, vendors sitting out over 60 days the net position here um, continues to improve and again this is driven off the fact that we have positive net revenue the line of credit, I talked about that just a, a few moments ago, and these numbers are well within our limit and lower than they've been in, you know, quite some time. Kim, question on the, the, the net negative balance. Uh, can you go back to the balance sheet slide, the previous slide? And is, is and I see the working capital loan of $37 million. Um, and is the, is the net negative balance the 11672, the last number on the bottom? Is that the net of two or more numbers in the balance sheet? Yes. So there's a, so the way the county reports out to us, they put this reserve cash fund against this to get to the 116, which is what they hold us accountable to. But we've got it grossed up here and the cash up here. Okay, so the, you have a working capital loan of 37. That's to the county, right? Yes. And where is the reserve cash fund? The cash fund that they offset this to get to the 11 is reported up here. 30, the 35,000? Yeah, well, it's 20. The actual number of the reserve is 25 million. Okay, it's within the, the 35 million cash. Exactly, you got it. Okay. And so we, you know, we can look at that, but the the county always, when they report what we owe is always net, but we put cash up here, whether it's reserved or not, and don't show it against the line of credit. Okay. So then I have the days in AR graph, and you can see it bounces around a lot. And, and I like to add more months because it gives you a really nice trend, but I figured I, I needed to start shortening that a little bit. <laughs> um, you can see it jumps around a bit, and that's based on the, the week. And also the timing of when we get our, um, we do our billing for the skilled nursing at the beginning of the month. So you always see it, you know, kind of jump and go down um here and then work its way down so you know that that happens all the time every month um but 
and that's the biggest swing in this is caused by that. Uh, and then there's just the weekly swings because we're not working on the weekends. Um, but overall, it's trending nicely. We did decrease again this month. And uh, our cash was good, uh, although lower than July. And I think that's my next slide here. Yeah. So we were at 57, which is still a solid month. You can tell by looking at our trend. And again, we continue to pick up. Um, we should see an, as our volumes recover, we should see this even get bigger. Remember that in 19, that was pre-COVID. 20, we had COVID, you know, with uh, reductions in volume in the 30% originally. So, uh, and then 21, we've been slowly recovering. And then here is the forecast of the net negative balance with the county. Um, there is, there was a big shift here of 32.7 million. Uh, and that we were down here when I reported last month. And we have now expect the line of credit to go up a bit. And it's just a timing difference. And I'll show you where it's coming from in the next slide. It was a $46 million adjustment. It was big. Um, that was partially offset because we're, we got some more behavioral health cash, which is good. That's one of our performance improvement initiatives. And also these retail pharmacy receipts and um, Measure A um, also had a, a, was slightly bigger, a million or two here. And then the cash was more than we had originally thought we would have. So it offset somewhat, but still we saw this pick up. But there's still a lot of room here to, you know, between where we project we will be and where we have to be under the agreement with the county. And just to remind everybody, the red one assumes we would have to pay all of our recoupments from many years ago. And then, of course, we would go exceed the line of credit significantly here. So question, Kim, so you're showing there basically that we would have to pay $125 million at the end of the year. If they, if they came due. I just don't, I need to put them somewhere so we don't forget about them. Okay. Um, so what we've done, at least since in the last year or two since I've been here, I just started estimating when we thought these would be due. Of course, COVID delayed, you know, a lot of the reconciliations with the state. So they just keep getting moved out and everybody keeps saying they're going to settle, they're going to settle, but I haven't heard any date. So I just leave them there so we know graphically what it would do to us. Your right. detail on your, on your report where you show the detail by each type of plan, supplemental plan. Here. There you don't, you don't show quite so much at the end of 22. Yeah, I show in my written report the full balance of the receivables and payables and when I think they're going to turn around. It's very detailed. Here, what I've done is I've shown the four recoupments from many years ago here. These are those ones in the red line, right? These are the things that have been sitting out here for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And the rest of them are just large material estimates of when the supplemental fundings are going to come due. Um, that 46 million I just talked about is uh, is right here. I had this at 62 million, but this QIP program changed to a calendar year. And me and my team thought, well, if it's a calendar year, we should get paid within six months. <clears throat> so we put them in June, the whole amount of 62 million that we thought. 
then CAPH clarified and said, nah, you're probably not going to get that money until the fall. I don't know for sure when we're going to get it, but I moved the $30 million out to the fall. And the other change was rate range here. It's $20 million in December. We had everything coming in in June. So that number last month was... Um, 36 million here. I moved 20 of it here and the other 16 out to the fall as well. And that again was because I got some better insight from CAPH. So, so uh, you're saying and that plan also moved to a calendar year. So this is the first time we're doing it based on a calendar year. So we have to make a lot of estimates on timing. So that it looks like the difference between this chart and your graph is that this chart reflects actually when you expect things to be settled and the graph says what happens, we're putting everything remaining outstanding in June 22. See, this and this are the same. There you go. Every, all those reds are the sum of these. Uh, sorry, wrong way. This, these numbers here yeah. represent this red line. Okay. If we had to pay them all in june all these other ups and downs are the material there are operations yes but the material supplementals are all laid out here which will correspond to those ups and downs on those lines there this is exact this is just the material transactions that make up this graph so this is this is the graphic of it and people always ask well what happens here what happens here what happens here so the purpose of this is to tell you what those big things are. Mm. Okay. So we did have a big change in the supplemental timing, that $46 million, and that did uh, have our projection go up on the line of credit. And these, I still don't have any new information for you, um, but just to remind you, uh, we did have, uh, James and I did talk to the state about the waivers, and they we did settle the FY12 in July. We, we didn't settle the entire thing, but we, we did settle the safety net care pool piece of it and the IGT part of it. So those are now behind us, which did change this to 57. It used to be, uh, I think it was 61. No, more than that, 72 maybe. Anyway, um, so we did pay the FY part of FY12, and we explained to the state that we don't have any you know, additional cash, and here we are in COVID. And so they told us that if we would settle the safety net care pool portion of this, that we wouldn't have to make any more payments on this this year. So you could say, well, Kim, then why don't you move this out to 23 and take it off the graph? I could do that or add another column. But at the end of the day, I thought the simplest way to graphically show this and share this information and not, so it doesn't get lost is just to put it there and then just explain that, uh, you know, I'm just assuming that this would happen in June, which I, I do not think it will happen. I'm sure it won't. Open to suggestions if it, you got if the board would like it presented another way. Um, in regard to these other things, the FQ, we are currently talking to the state 
things are looking positive for Alameda Health System, but I don't have anything in writing and no agreement yet. Um, these, uh, this 13 million from these cost report years that are tied to the same period as the old waiver, that's real. I'm sure we're gonna end up paying that. And the physician spa, um, we actually are, are working with government reimbursement and Toyon to see if we can uh, provide adequate documentation to, to help our situation here. Uh, I have no report tonight, but um, this estimate was put on by my predecessor several years ago, and nothing's really changed since then because the state hasn't tried to to reconcile anything yet. So, uh, but I'm you know I'm doing my own work now to see if uh, we can adequately support and maybe not have to pay this all back. But we're I don't have any report on that yet. Any other questions? Okay, so that is my finance report. Thank you so much for that, uh, Kim. You're welcome. Yeah, very good information. Are there any other questions? Thank you for always bringing um, insightful questions trustee fox now we will move into the next portion of our agenda item b2 which is our chief operating officer report are we going to hear from you directly again mark <laughs> yes yes you are my apologies trustee esteem <laughs> no it's great i love it when we hear from you directly um so I'll give a, a, a real brief report. Um, most of it is centered around Highland. Um, so David, if we can scroll to the next slide and hit the, hit the button, please. First of all, I want to talk about throughput. Um, you, since you've been on, all been on the board, I'm sure you've heard comments about our throughput at Highland and how we're impacted in our emergency department and our longer length of stay and the difficulty getting our patients out of the hospital. And we're really focused on that. We're starting, I believe, probably not next week, but the week after multidisciplinary team rounds in the patient's room to visit with the patient and their family about their discharge plan daily. We're piloting it with at least one team. Dr. Besh uh, mentioned this last week or last month when we, when we met. We're really looking forward to it. It literally means that, you know, the nurses, the physicians, the care management team, um, and anybody else involved in the case who people feel should be there will walk into the rooms and and uh, meet with our patients. Um, it's best practice. Um, it improves patient satisfaction and patients really and the team, frankly, get clarity on what the discharge plan is. Next one, Dave. We're starting a lot of rounding on floors. Mark Brown, our new chief administrative officer, is on the call here, to, uh, is on Zoom here tonight. And Mark, working with the nursing leaders on the floor, um, Teresa Cooper, Fei-Fei, and others, is just doing, I think, a fantastic job rounding every day, trying to understand um, which patients will be ready to leave, working with the teams to try to um, add insight, if you will, on how to transition the patients to their next level of care. Next button. Um, Dr. Simon, Michelle Hepburn in the emergency room, John Ramirez are all working on 
how do we develop more space for fast track in our emergency room? Um, this is going to be a short-term fix and a long-term fix because we're going to clear out a room, um, use it minimalistically until we can um, make some architectural rendering, renderings and get approval from the state to, to do some minor construction there. But this will have a big impact on ED throughput if we can create at least five more fast track spots. Next slide. Um, we're also working a lot on community discharges. Dr. Besh mentioned this last week, but um, if we go to the next slide, David, you will see that every single day now we're focused on our length of stay patients that are over 10 days, our Kaiser patients that we can repatriate, and all of the San Leandro and Alameda Hospital patients from those zip codes that we could send back to their community hospitals. You can see that three weeks ago, we had 39 patients in our hospital with the length of stay over 10 days. On the 4th, it was 23. And as we sit here today, we're down to 20. Six of those 20 are in our ICU, but it's a significant decline. Um, our Kaiser patients, we're repatriating back to Kaiser as soon as we can and then transitioning the San Leandro Alameda patients to back to their community hospital best we can. Um, we believe that this will create some space up in our inpatient units to be able to transition the borders out of our emergency room more timely. Next slide. Next slide, Dave. So also, you know, by, by human beings bringing awareness to the issues and all of us working together to try to make it better. You build awareness, you build insights, um, and you really have a Hawthorne effect where it will get better. And that's what we're seeing right now. Things are getting better, but you reach a certain ceiling with it. Whereas if you don't improve process, um, things will go back. It's too people dependent, if you will. So, we're working with Huron to probably get together and do a best initiative around throughput so we can get at the underlying issues and processes that are broken, fix them. Our goal is to fix it and sustain it over time so we never have to hear about the chronic problem of throughput at Highland or the borders in our ED. It's been too long, too much of a problem. Next button. We're also looking at developing a seven-day-a-week hospital. And, David, if you go to the next slide, you will see the days of the weeks our patients are discharged. If you look at Monday through Wednesday, Thursday, we discharge quite a few patients. And on the weekend, it drops off significantly. Best practice on this is typically a flatter line and more discharges on Saturday and Sunday. One of the reasons is that some of our services, and we're trying to identify which ones they are, aren't always available on the weekends. And so we need to, and, and subsequently the patient, if they need something, they may have to wait until Monday um, before we can get them discharged. So we're looking at what are those services that are preventing us from being a full service seven day a week hospital. And I wanna show you the, the next slide, what radiology is working on just to give you some perspective. So radiology, and by the way, our new director of imaging, Troy Ashford, is hitting the ground running and doing a great job. 
we have an MRI backlog, and you've heard our physicians at the board meeting talk about the MRI issue, but we've got a grand total of about 229. These are outpatient MRIs. But if we're trying to do outpatient MRIs, it can also have an impact on the need to do inpatient MRIs. We are going to place um, or, or augment the MRI we have at Alameda to be open seven days a week instead of five. This will get rid of our backlog in about 12 weeks. Um, and with that, um, we should be able to accommodate both inpatients and outpatients within the timeframes that our patients need um, the MRI. Next slide. Um, mammography, a similar story. We've got, if you look at the screening mammographies versus the diagnostic mammographies, we're backed up a long way. Troy has opened, along with his, his team, um, another mammography room on the 4th, and it'll create 21 additional time slots per day for our patients, relieving our backlog in eight weeks. It'll also create walking capacity. Um, if our physicians um, want a patient, let's say, to go from primary care over to MRI or over to mammography to get a scan, they'll be able to do so. So all of this is just fantastic work to try to decrease backlog, um, improve efficiency, and help us become more of a full-service seven-day-a-week hospital. Next slide. Also in our GI lab, um, we had 673 patients backlogged to come in for either some type of endoscopy or GI procedure in our GI lab. Today we're at 210 is all. We expect um, that volume to continue to drop over the next two to three months and get it down to a point where there's no backlog. Um, um, John Young, Dr. Bouquet, and the staff in this area have done a lot. Um, they've hired more staff, um, and they've extended the hours of operations. They've hired and changed the shifts for the nurses to 10-hour shifts, all in order to accommodate more volume. So in these three areas, we're going to get there, and we're going to get there in probably, um, you know, eight to eight to 12 weeks, and really pleased about the work being done here. Next slide. Finally, I just want to let the board know, you know, we've heard a lot about leaders that have left. Um, we also, I also want you to be aware of, of the talent that we are getting. Um, I mentioned Troy as our director of radiology. We're starting um, and we'll soon have in place a director of cardiovascular services who will partner with Dr. Trilaskaya and Dr. Arabi to longitudinally um, develop cardiovascular services across our system. So it's a, it's a new role for us, but we're hoping that um, when we see its success, we can consider it for other service lines. We've got Patty Espeseth, um, the CEO at John George, Mark at Highland, and Mario Harding. Um, is starting next Monday as the CAO of San Leandro and Alameda. The CNO interviews um, will be completed next Monday. So by the middle of next week, toward the end of next week, we should have clarity on who our next CNO may be. So um, lots happening around. Uh, oh, and then John Ramirez, too, our vice president of facilities, started about three months ago. So 
we've made a lot of inroads in, in um, bringing talent to the organization. Next slide, please. Question for you. That's perfect timing, uh, Trustee Fox, questions. Um, bringing in a director of, for the cardiovascular service line. Yeah. Is part of that intent to develop a service line that might be marketable to managed care payers? Yes. And here's the other thing, um, other functions they will do. Um, they will help develop a physician um, recruitment plan for cardiovascular services. We'd like to understand the profitability of the service line. They can do that. They can help us uh, with a growth plan, um, which could include um, what you just described, Trustee Fox. Um, so there's a whole, we want them to develop a scorecard and quality safety metrics for their service line. So a lot of, um, a lot of things to do, frankly, um, to help support a service line. Any other questions? Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Fratsky. That was really good information. Um, our next item on the agenda is item C1, our performance improvement. We're talking about best initiatives, which is building excellence, sustainability, and trust. Kim, are you giving this presentation? Yes, let me get it up here. All right, so here is our new reporting. Uh, we, we did report on last year's initiatives uh, and uh, we've taken the feedback from the, the Finance Committee and also internally from our ELT and we've uh, come up with this format. We, we plan to share this every other month. Uh, the legend we're using is uh, blue for it's complete and on track and there's there's nothing we need to worry about. Um, green is it's on track. It hasn't been completed yet, but we don't have, see any problems or issues with it. Yellow means we need to watch it. We got a few concerns. It's not dialed in, you know, that there's there's still things that need to be done to make sure that we achieve our goal. And red means we're off track or it's not going to happen, meaning that, you know, we're going to have to work on this or we're going to have to find another way to bring in the funding that we had thought we would have from this performance improvement initiative. So here's what the what it looks like. It's kind of a lot of columns. Um, uh, I, hopefully it's not too much. We'll, we'll see how this goes. So if everyone will remember, we built in um, performance improvement into the budget. So that's what this middle column here is. This is the amount of money that we built into our budget that we need to achieve in order to make budget. There's some stretch items we did not include in the budget that I'm also going to report on. The idea is that we will come up with whatever initiatives necessary so that we will at least achieve what we need to to get to budget. So the first one here is the overtime reduction. And um, we built into the budget 3.2 million. Our baseline was 3.8%, and that's overtime as a percent of productive hours. 
our budget was built in at 2.7, so a significant improvement. Our actual is running at 3.6, so we're not quite where we want to be for budget, but we are doing better than baseline. And this is just two months in, and we did build this in all year, and maybe we should have ramped it up. We did not. Um, we're seeing um, achievement of 0.02, so we're 2.6 off the budget. You can see we had a rough month in July and it improved in August. So that's what this uh, graphic is. Mark is our, Mark Fratsky is our leader on this initiative. And some of the things that have happened is daily huddles to manage overtime productivity and sitter usage. Um, we are struggling. We have more double overtime, and a lot of it has to do with backfilling for, you know, for um, absences for COVID, and the fact that you know registry is really difficult to find. There's so many people competing for it. Uh, so we are yellow on this one. Uh, the length of stay issue, uh, we built in 6.6 .6 million. Um, our budget was at 4.74. That's a cute length of stay. Our baseline was 5.33. So again, we're showing improvement at 5.2, but we're not to where we had budgeted. So we're seeing some um, dollar improvement here, but we are running behind. So we're yellow. Things that are happening, and, and Mark just spoke about this, so there's these daily, uh, daily multidisciplinary rounds, MDRs. There's a length of stay group. Um, so a lot happening here to move this forward. The next one is uh, revenue cycle improvements. And there's two components to the revenue cycle. There's cash flow, which is just cash coming in the door. And then there's revenue cycle improvements that actually got built into our budget, which are part of our net income. So we built in 3.9. We have achieved zero. You may say, well, then why is it green? You're, you're not showing any improvement here. And the reason for that is we still are very confident that we will get the 3.9 million. What's happening here is our charge capture project for the GI and the ED are happening. It's in track. We're going to improve our charge capture. We, uh, we have a, a performa for it. We've got a consultant working on it. We have no doubt we will achieve that. Um, we also have a vendor that's looking at low pays, and they've done their analysis, and they've actually identified the accounts they're going to go after, and they far actually exceed what we put into this 3.9. And then we want to get our patients eligible for Medi-Cal, this one isn't as much money as about 500,000. Uh, but anyway, that file is uh, tested and ready to be sent out each month so we can get these folks eligible. So we think that we'll more than achieve this, which is why it's, it's green. Lots of good work done. On the cash flow, um, I reported on AR days. Our baseline was 63.5. Our budget was 50 by and we needed to get there by April 1st. We're currently at 58.6, so we got 8.6 days. We need to reduce this by April 1st. 
we decided to make this yellow because we had a first quarter target for September. This is only as of August that made us feel like we could not get that first quarter target. So that made the team feel like this one needed to move to yellow status. I think we will get there. We have Huron engaged. I'm going to talk about that in the stretch targets. And I think that, you know, we'll, we will achieve this, this goal, but we need to pay attention to it. And that's why it's yellow. The uh, next slide here is IOP. Um, oh, I think I, I go back too many. I do this every time. I do not understand why this happens. I'm missing some initiatives here. Um, anyway, so this next one here is a stretch item. All of these are. There is IOP, and here we wanted to improve the revenue and also maybe build out a wellness model. Um, again, nothing was in the budget. We have a new CAO, Patty, overseeing this. I think Mark uh, talked about Patty just a few minutes ago. And we have a report from a consultant on what we need to do to fix this. So we didn't build anything in, but I am sure that we're going to see a nice pickup for IOP. Sitter management, we had a stretch of half a million. Um, We've got a team working on this. You saw a minute ago for the overtime that, that there's this daily meeting that Mark's instituted, Mark Fratsky. And so we think that we will achieve this as well. It's just a stretch, so it's not, uh, it's not you know, color-coded. The best initiative here with Huron, um, they have already initiated a supply chain um, initiative they have rolled out a revenue cycle and a pharmacy and a purchase services um, initiatives. I don't have those dollars in here yet. It's just too new. But all of those are happening right now. They've already done their analysis. They're presenting it. We're working through the committees. So a lot of activity happening here and good progress. On the labor management front, we, we put ourselves red we have a, a target here of paid FTE per AOB. And again, this kind of blends a lot of things. It blends length of stay in here because it's adjusted occupied bed. So um, our target is 5.46. Um, budget was at 5.52. Again, this is a stretch and we're actually at 5.6, which is why this is red. Um, Again, we've got overtime as a separate item. We've got length of stay as a separate item, but this was something we had on our stretch. I think, I think maybe we, we might need to, to eliminate it here because in a way it's double counting, but this is what we reported to you before. So I didn't want to just take it out without having a conversation. So um, that is the update on the performance improvement initiatives. And um, we will come back every other month to you. I want to comment on the missing slide that should be in the deck that you have that for whatever reason is not here in mine. And let me do that really quickly. There, they are payer contracting. Um, we built into the budget um, 0.3. 
I'm sorry, we built in 3 million. We've achieved 0.3 for the first two months that this initiative has been in play. We have uh, 10 contracts that need to be negotiated. We've closed four of them. We are struggling just, just uh, to let folks know with some of the big payers like Anthem and Blue Shield. Um, they're not wanting to, to step up to the level we want them to step up to. We're pressuring them hard, but we did um, roll out the CDM increases for the contracts that we have the CDM and that's being realized. And uh, in the uh, review of the, of the performance on some of these contracts, we found a few issues where the payers weren't paying us appropriately. And it looks like we will more than exceed our target of the 3 million if you consider that. So in this case, we have this one green, green to yellow, because we do got to watch it, but things are looking positive. I, I would like to report that we could get the anthems and the blue shields of the world to the table, uh, but it's, it is uh, proving to be a challenge. John George billing uh, and operational improvements, we had 8 million, so that's a big one. That is a really big one that we had in our performance improvement. Um, right now, we are in discovery to optimize operations. You, got, you met Patty, I mean, she's a key as a CAO to this. Um, we also have the revenue cycle team. Um, what's happened so far is we are now billing for ward consults, professional fees. We were not doing that before. Um, we are working with the county on retroactive uh, invoicing for two years, and it's going quite well. We have also moved the reconciliation between EPIC and the county insist system to my new um, billing team. And by doing that, we hope there will be less errors and more timely invoicing, and we're seeing that happening. But we need to get the John George billing operation into EPIC so that we can get reports, so that we can measure our, uh, our movement on this initiative. So I, I, as I said, we're in discovery. We do need to um, change the EPIC build so that we can report and it is in process. Next month, our plan is to have a um, have a, a presentation to this group on how things are doing with John George. So I don't know if Patty will give that presentation with um, Michael from my side, from Revenue Cycle. We'll work that out, but we will give you a full report on John George uh, since that is worth $8 million and a lot of work and a lot of resources are going into correcting this situation. The next item was the dental clinic. Our goal was to either move the dental clinic to an FQ or to contract with our FQ so that we could get FQ rates in the dental clinic. Um, there is a cross-functional work group that's been established by Katherine Horner. She's running this. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, we are talking to the state on the settlement and I hope to have some, some more information on that soon. There was um, a half a million built into the budget, and I think we will figure out a way to get that. The last item was HPAC and outside medical costs. We wanted to try to bring in some of the outsourced work for the HPAC patient population. 
And we also wanted to maybe improve the contracts we have, like with UCSF and some of the other payers. We had, um, we built in uh, 400,000 for this. We're currently green and it's based on our spend rate for two months. We have a positive variance of 75,000. Um, but there is a lot of work going on there with Tangerine and our star team on processes. And um, we, we went ahead and included that as green because of the first, the positive variance of the first two months. So I'm, I apologize that that slide was not in my deck. I do believe it is in the finance committee report. Any questions on the performance improvement initiatives? Everybody's so quiet. <laughs> the performance improvement initiatives are critical to us achieving our budget. And, uh, and there are a lot of internal resources um, devoted to making sure that we hit, hit those targets. And I'm, I'm really excited about the process that we've built and the leadership team that's making this happen. I just want to say that I really like the format. It's very clear. I like the color system, makes it easy to see where we're falling short and where we're doing well. So great presentation. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, and I think it'll take us more time to absorb what's happening with BEST. I see that our CEO has his hand raised. Please. Thank you very much, Chair. I just wanted to um, acknowledge um, Kim and her leadership on this. Mark is chairing the best initiative, but Kim has been working hand in glove with Mark on that. And I'm really pleased with the, the initiatives that we've come up with. And the daily productivity meetings are really showing benefit. Mark talked earlier about becoming a seven day a week operation. And I think that's one, it's the best thing for patients, but two, it really will drive productivity and our ability to manage and to stay in a way that we've just not seen previously. And then finally, I just wanted to acknowledge transparency because in the way that we're sharing it with the trustees, we are also sharing it with the entire organization. And so all of our staff are aware and engaged in what we're doing with the best initiative. And I just think that's gonna pay dividends down the road. Thank you. Thank you for that. Are there any questions? Members of the audience? All right. We will move into our next agenda item, item C2, the insurance policy review. This is going to be led by our general counsel, Ahmad Azizi. Thank you, Trustee Osteen. Um, I'm going to have John James uh, present here. John was kind enough to join us here tonight. Um, he works with us in all aspects of insurance, really. Um, he's been a principal uh, with James and Gable Insurance Brokers, and they've worked with us since, you know, for about 10 years or so, for as long as I've, heard, I've been here. Uh, um, his role, their role includes evaluating, negotiating, placing our insurance policies, um, as well as assisting us in claims management, loss control, and risk management initiatives. So, John, I'll, I'll let you take it from here. You're on mute, John. John, you're on mute. There you go. How's are. that? 
That's great. Thank you. Okay, Lamont, thanks for the introduction. Um, thank you all for for allowing me to chat about your insurance program. Um, as we walk through this, certainly ask questions. Um, we're going to give you a lot of high-level information. If there's something that isn't making sense, I'm going too fast. I'm using verbiage that doesn't that you're not familiar with. Certainly, um, stop me and and we can walk through it. So what I what I thought I would start with really is an overall insurance market update, and that'll sort of frame you know the the issues that we deal with on a day to day basis. So in general, the insurance market is tightening up. And essentially what that means is the results by underwriters and insurance companies are uh, not where they want them to be. So ultimately what they do to sort of swing the pendulum back is they've got some levers that they can play with. One is increasing premiums. One is increasing deductibles. Um, some of them will reduce policy limits. So instead of offering 10 million limit or a $20 million limit, they may scale that back to 5 million. Um, and then some insurance companies will put in more restrictive policy language. Um, there are insurers that are just getting out of certain lines of business altogether. For example, on the professional liability, so the malpractice, two big players in the last 12 months have exited, exited the market. One is Zurich and the other is CNA. And essentially what happens when a carrier gets out is their business needs to get absorbed by other markets. So it's putting pricing pressure on those other markets. Um, and then underwriters are just generally being more selective. Um, they're asking more questions. They're taking more time to underwrite risks, and the process tends to slow down a bit. So our renewal strategy, so we start our renewals about 120 days out, and, and really what that means is um, prior to that time frame, we sit down with a mod. We talk about what's working, what's not working in terms of claims management, loss control, risk management services. We talk about um, strategically what you guys have on the horizon that could impact loss experience, impact insurance, and we bake all of that in to the renewal process. We seek options every two to three years on every policy. Um, if we do it more frequently than that, underwriters get a little bit weary of looking at your risk every year. Um, the caveat to that timetable um, is if we have an issue with an insurance company, if we get a renewal quote that's not acceptable, if their services are deteriorating, um, the reason we start the renewal process as early as we do is if, for example, we haven't gone out to market on a specific line of business, and we get a quote that we're, we were not expecting, that gives us time to get alternative quotes. So we can backfill if that happened to be a policy that wasn't being marketed. 
Um, the insurers that we go to are evaluated on a variety of factors. Stability. John, I think uh, Trustee Fox had a question. There. Question, John. Yep. In terms of the, the market tightening up, is that a general uh, uh, factor across the whole economy, or is it more so in healthcare uh, than in other sectors of the economy? Uh, good question. It's in general, the insurance market is tightening up. We specialize in the healthcare space, so I can sort of, I can really only talk to that. The policy types that are that are feeling more pressure than others, um, privacy liability, which is probably not a great surprise to to anybody. Um, that's driven by ransomware claims. That's driven by the constriction in the market. Um, and then surprisingly, one of the other policies that has really been sort of flying under the radar is fiduciary liability. And the reason for that is um, plaintiff's attorneys has, have figured out a way to really data mine for excessive fee type claims. So if you're not evaluating your uh, benefit plan administrators and the fees that they're charging, and that's translating into higher costs or potentially lower returns to your um, plan participants, um, they're starting to see a lot of class action lawsuits in that space. And then... We have another hand up, our CEO's hand. I'm not sure if you're done, John. Sorry for interrupting. No, go ahead. I apologize. I had not lowered. I did not have a question. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, so the the items that we evaluate the carriers on, one is stability. So sort of goes without saying that we want insurance companies that are committed to the healthcare space. So we don't want an insurance company that's that comes in with a low-ball malpractice premium, and then they're out of the business in two years, and then they get back in a couple of years after that. So we look at their stability. We look at their expertise, service capabilities in terms of claims handling, risk management service capabilities, loss control service capabilities, um, and then policy form. So how broad or how restrictive is the policy form? And then premium level. Um, and those were put in there in no particular order. Obviously, premium is a highly sensitive uh, item. But we can't chase the lowest possible premium just for premium purposes only. There has to be all of these other supporting factors that get evaluated into the mix. And then part of the analysis, we always get different deductible level options or different self-insured retention level options. We do a financial analysis that maps your historical loss experience against different deductible levels, against premiums, to see where the optimal level really sits. Um, John? Yes. Question. What do you mean by policy form? So policy form, every, every insurance company is going to have a policy form that's a little bit different. 
in terms of what it covers and what it excludes. So, you know, when we go through the evaluation process, that's part of that exercise. Okay, thank you. Um, you have a number of risk reduction efforts uh, that are that are ongoing. Uh, there is a strong emphasis on risk management support that we're looking for from insurers and vendors. Um, and, and I'll pick on Beta Healthcare because they're your professional liability carrier, and they have a um, a number of initiatives where they have different touch points within the Alameda Health Systems leadership team for OB initiatives, ED initiatives, um, loss control and educational um, efforts. And, and those really do pay dividends. And, you know, I think there are a number of insurance companies out there that, that issue policies. And, you know, if you have a claim, you call them but they just don't have much in the way of robust service. And, you know, beta puts, puts a premium, if you will, uh, on interaction and collaboration from a risk reduction standpoint. And then one thing that's a bit unique with beta is they have risk management resource funds. So there's about $30,000 available between Alameda Health Systems and East Bay Medical Group for risk management um, activity. So bringing in a speaker for educational purposes, sending people to conferences, um, you know, buying equipment if it has a risk management bent to it. So it's, it's not a ton of money, but they're putting their money where their mouth is, which is, hey, we we think risk management, quality management is is critically important, and because of that, you know, a portion of your premium gets redirected back to you. So, any any other questions at this point? One more question: um, How would you characterize? Alameda Health System in terms of its uh, risk management efforts. Uh, are we strong, uh, mediocre, uh, weak? Are we getting better, getting worse? Um, I would say you're strong. You know, and I think it comes from the leadership. Uh, it starts at the top. And, you know, we've worked with you for about 10 years. Beta has worked with you for, for significantly longer than that. Um, and I think the, the risk management engagement level at a senior leadership and, and setting the tone um, is strong and continuing to improve. Thank you. John, uh, this is Kim. I, I, Kim Miranda, I have a question here. On, the, on that um, resource funds, is that new and, um, you know, is that something we've been taking advantage of in the past? Um, it is not new, and yes, you haven't taken advantage of it in the past. It's a use-it-or-lose-it proposition, so if you were to renew with beta, you can't roll over unused funds. So there's a report that goes out, um, and your policy period runs July to June, thir- July 1 to June 30th. 
So we will start bugging Ahmad in January on what the balance is so that you do end up using it. Thank you. So the next slide. Let me get back to it. So the next slide. So what we did here was sort of working from left to right. So the coverage type, then the insurance company where the coverage is placed. We provided the policy number, policy limits, retention. Retention is the same as a deductible. And then coverage highlights. And I'm not sure how much time I have to go through this. So what I what I may do is just sort of hit top level. Here are the here are the important things to consider about these John, coverages. Our, our our spot on the agenda is about fifteen minutes. Okay. So starting with the professional liability and general liability. So professional liability is considered malpractice insurance. Coverages with beta. Uh, the policy limit is $30 million per claim with a $40 million annual aggregate. And, you know, we evaluate policy limits every year. We look at higher limits to see if it, if um, there's a reason to, to move up in the, in the limit selection. Then on the retention, so think of this as a deductible. $500,000 per claim, and that includes defense expenses with a $1.5 million annual aggregate. And then the coverage highlights, basically it's for bodily injury, property damage, um, rendering or failure to render professional services. Sexual abuse is covered, as is assault and battery. I point that out because a lot of the professional liability carriers exclude sexual abuse. Um, the next coverage is directors and officers liability with employment practices. Employment practices would be wrongful termination, discrimination, harassment, etc. And virtually all of your claims fall into the employment practices type claims. Um, policy limit is $10 million per claim with a $10 million annual aggregate. The deductible is $100,000 for D&O claims and $200,000 for employment claims. Um, just a, a, a point of context, beta's deductible levels, at least on employment practices, are significantly below um, what the general market would offer. Um, an organization your size with the employee count that you have, you'd probably be looking at a minimum of a $500,000 employment practices deductible, maybe higher. Um, so this covers claims against the entity, so AHS. Directors, officers, employees, um, department heads, etc. Automobile insurance, um, pretty straightforward. It's 
$20 million policy limit. This is with beta as well. Uh, $250 comprehensive deductible and 500 deductible on collision. We looked at higher deductibles and the premium credit really didn't warrant moving up on the deductible. Um, one thing I will point out is um, beta, you can see that these first three policies are with beta, um, as is your excess workers' compensation insurance. Beta is a member-owned program, so they're not a commercial insurance company. They've been around since the late 70s. Because they're member-owned, any profit gets redistributed to the policyholders. So in the form of a dividend, your dividend this year between AHS and East Bay Medical Group is right about a million dollars. The next policy is volunteer accident. So essentially, if you have volunteers working at the hospital, instead of running that through your workers' comp program, where you're self-insured, uh, this policy would pick it up. Storage tank liability, so underground storage tank, um, pretty straightforward coverage, million dollar limit, $100,000 retention or deductible, bodily injury and property damage. And the underground tank is, um, uh, diesel for backup generators. Crime coverage is the next one. So we've got a primary layer with National Union and an excess layer with Berkeley. So $15 million limit combined. Um, $2,500 deductible. And it insures against theft, forgery, alteration. And probably the biggest one right now is funds transfer fraud. So folks that, and, and we haven't seen it um, a lot, but we've certainly seen claims where people will impersonate a vendor, they will change a routing number, they will um, contact your accounts payable folks via email and um, see if you'll go ahead and send money that, that they don't deserve. The issue here really is a human error issue where you have policies and procedures in place where there's, uh, anytime there's a request to change routing numbers or banking numbers, that there's a second set of eyes that's looking at it. Next coverage is privacy liability. So I mentioned this at the beginning. Um, this is getting a tremendous amount of pressure in terms of policy limit reduction by carriers. A number of carriers are getting out of this business altogether. There is some discussion at, at the federal level about making ransomware payments illegal. I don't know how much traction that will get um, the IRS is involved because it's a deductible expense, at least currently. So, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces. The 
the $10 million limit that we have with Beasley this year, we'll probably have to use two insurance companies next year to achieve that same policy limit just because Beasley is, is paring back their limit and trying to manage their exposure. Fiduciary liability, that covers the, the you as the administrator for your benefit plans. $20 million, $10 million primary policy and a $10 million excess policy. Then, and I'll go through these pretty quick. Pollution policy um, provides liability in cleanup for uh, a pollution event. Property insurance, the, the, we have two different property policies. We have a property policy for AHS-owned locations. And then you have a separate property policy that the county provides you for county-owned locations, and they bill you back for that. There is a little bit of pressure on property insurers. Probably will accelerate based on the spate of floods, hurricanes, and fires that we've experienced in the last uh, six to 12 months. Kidnap and ransom. Um, in the event that you have a kidnap event where you have a an infant that is taken, we don't again we don't see that often, um, but we have seen it. Workers' compensation, you're self-insured for um, there, and there is a typo here. So where you see in the limits where it says WC. The limits for the workers' comp are actually statutory. So I apologize for that. I will get that fixed and, and send it over to a lot. Um, so statutory limits means you're covered for whatever the cost is to uh, adjudicate the claim or claims. You have a $2 million self-insured retention. And EL is employer's liability. Okay. And essentially what that is, is if you, employees, their, their, their ability to come back after you really is, they can file a claim for workers' comp when they're injured. If it's determined that there was gross negligence in the workplace environment, and they can establish that. Then they can file an employer's liability claim. In the 30 years or so that I've worked with hospitals, I've never seen an employer's liability claim. And then the last one is out-of-state workers' comp. So we have a handful of folks that work remotely, and we have uh, a workers' compensation policy that covers them uh, while they're working uh, I would expect out of their homes. And the last page is the same insurance summary format for East Bay Medical Group. The professional and general liability is with beta. Uh, million, three million per physician. 
with a hundred thousand dollar deductible. They have a separate DNO policy, ten million dollars per claim with a hundred thousand dollar deductible for DNO and one hundred and fifty thousand for employment practices. Um, again, I'll, I just want to point out most medical groups of East Bay medical group size, the employment practices deductible for physician claims would be would start at about two hundred and fifty grand and ramp up from there pretty quickly. So the $150,000 deductible is, is certainly advantageous. Privacy liability, uh, $2 million uh, policy limit with a $25,000 deductible. And then they are endorsed on to AHS policy for both crime and fiduciary. So I, f- I think I sped up a bit after Ahmad said I had a total of 15 minutes. So if I if I went through that too quickly, certainly um, let me know and, and ask any questions that you may have. Um, one more question that I have, John, and thank you very much for this uh, excellent presentation. Um, I see that we have no earthquake insurance for AHS. Um, I guess so. Uh, am I um, wrong about that? Sure. So the, the the county provides property insurance for the uh, county-owned locations. So, you know, for example, Highland, and they do have earthquake insurance. So we don't handle that. So I can't. I I know in broad strokes. Um, what the policy looks like, but it's a policy that's purchased by the county, and it covers the whole county as well okay. as HS-owned locations. Okay, so basically, if we had earthquake damage, we would then look to the county to uh, to assist us in in financing the rebuild. Is that correct. a correct assumption? That is correct. Okay. So on the the wrinkle to that is AHS owned locations. So San Leandro and in some clinics, we've looked at earthquake, earthquake coverage for San Leandro um, every couple of years. And, and the decision has been made not to purchase it just based on the deductible and the premium. Um, we'll look at it again this upcoming July 1st. And Alameda Hospital, the property insurance is is procured by the district. And I don't know um, if their property policy includes earthquake or not. Okay. Any other questions? Does your company sell earthquake insurance? I mean, it feels like a pretty big exposure. Um, so we we can certainly get earthquake quotes. Um, the oftentimes the 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 reason to not buy it, and it, it's a good question, and we evaluate it, like I said, every couple of years. The deductible can be fairly sizable. And, and the, depending on the age of the building, so for, for San Leandro, it's an older building, depends on the construction type. 
in in the modeling. So from a loss experience, from a loss standpoint, so the deductible could be five or ten million dollars per claim, and you weigh that with a with a high six or seven figure premium, and in you know it just you look at it and say, man, let's just sort of keep that money ourselves and and you know address it when we need to. Yeah, it's like when you buy your quick insurance on your home, the deductible is two hundred thousand. It's like what, what? exactly, and and you have a loss, and it's fifteen grand or twenty grand. Right. right. Yeah. Any other questions? No, thank you to uh, uh, Ahmad uh, and Kim and and John for this uh, giving us this, this information. It was very helpful. Uh, Trustee Fox, you had one other question that I know you sent to me in advance, which was how much we are spending on insurance generally. Right. Uh, and and, and uh, I did the numbers there. It's about $11.7 million. Okay. And that includes the workers' comp, right? Yes, everything. Okay. Thank you. Thank you all. Have a good evening. Uh, thank you very much for your appreciation. Thank you, John. And that moves us into section D of our agenda, which is review of contracts. This is an action item and we have two contracts to review. Trustee SD, it's one contract. We pulled the other um, late in the, sorry about that. But it's it's the vital contingent planning contract. All right. Christine, I can speak to that if you wish. Please and thank you. Yeah. Um, so I think Kim was saying earlier how difficult it is to for us right now to, um, if we need to, fill some of our staffing gaps with um, registry, either clinical registry or non-clinical registry, and. <clears throat> We have for a long time been using our GPO um, Visient to help us um, with getting registry staff. Um, and it's such a competitive market. Visient is still working with us, um, but we want to broaden the tent a little, if you will, to have um, other registry or contract agencies help us try to find staff. In particular, we have you know, difficulties hiring into labor and delivery, OR, ICU, ED, and NICU right now. Given what's going on in the rest of the country, many of the um, traveling staff, et cetera, are in areas that have really been impacted by COVID. So um, this with the $7.5 million cap, it will help broaden our tent and um, vital contingency staffing, we believe, will give us another option to explore if we need more staff. My hunch or guess <clears throat> is that we won't use them a lot and we won't use a lot of money toward that 7.5, um, but it does give us an option uh, today. Uh, so Mark, you're saying that the that this, <clears throat> this contract doesn't commit us to spending 7.5. No. It allows no. us to use them up to a ceiling of 7.5. Correct. Okay. I would move approval. Uh, do we have a second and then I have a question? 
second. How much have we spent on contracts? I know we talk every month about whether or not we're over budget, under budget on the registry. Um, so how how related is this ceiling, the seven point five million, to what we actually spend? Kim, do you have um, Kim Miranda? Do you have an idea of our our registry spend? Yeah, our registry is uh, is high. So so far this year, we've spent about six million compared to a budget of three million or three point two. Um, we always net that against our labor costs because if we're paying registry, we're not paying our labor, right? We've got vacancies or they're on leave. So the, the net is unfavorable, basically 1.5 million for the first two months. Um, in uh, August, as I said, we're actually favorable. So we really uh, turn things around in the month of August. And I think, you know, we've, uh, we recognize that, you know, being restricted to just a, a one contract could actually uh, put us in jeopardy of not having our, the staff. So really, this is just about um, not concentrating a risk. We, we want to make sure that we have the ability to pull in people that we need to provide the services. Uh, I don't think that it really is a cost issue because, uh, you know, overall, yes, we're 1.5 million over for the two months, most of that coming from July. Now we're actually seeing a positive um, paid FTE variance. I think it's really just about having more options so that we can get the appropriate staff we need to run the business. Yeah, that is correct. Thanks, Kim. So this is in addition to all the current yes. registry, all the current contracting, even though right now we are double the budget. We ex In the presentation you gave earlier, we were expected to be at 1,500. We were more than 3,000. Well, our, our net, if you combine registry <clears throat> and our wages, we are unfavorable 1.5 for the two months. We're favorable in August, and I expect that the, I hope, I, I believe that we're going to continue to manage the labor. We got a lot of uh, performance improvement initiatives in play and a lot of people working on it. I think it's it's not about money. It's really more about having the ability to access the people we need to run our organization. Without making them permanent civil servants? Correct. Well, I think if we could if we could fill our positions internally, we would, which is why our registry budget is so high, because we always think we're going to be able to fill all of our positions, but it's not as easy to do in our market. Uh, what is the cost difference between uh, the registry per FTE and someone being, you know, like on an annual basis, an FTE of, let's say, a nurse, for example? So versus... when, when I started two years ago, I was really surprised to see that it actually was cheaper to use registry. I've never seen that anywhere in my career. However, I would need to relook at that now because I know registry has really gone up. I mean, there's a shortage of labor in the country, particularly skilled healthcare workers, and we are all competing to bring them in and get them in across the country. So I would need to look at that again now because uh, I have a feeling that it's changed substantially. Well, I think the, the part of the cost that aren't often considered is the training 
the the fact that you invest so much time in bringing in staff and then if they don't retain if you don't retain them and the registry that's why it's cheaper because you can just bring them in they can leave they can come and there's no loss right I think you're absolutely yeah. right. Training is important, yeah. and we want regular <clears throat> staff. We want yeah. we want people we know and trust in the organization. Yeah. And I think we're we're just in a really unique situation right now with the pandemic and the um, issues it's causing all health care organizations, including our own. I mean, our long term, medium to long term plan is to not have travelers, frankly and to have as many of our own staff as we possibly can. So we really expect the traveler numbers to be decreased and run down through the coming months. Even through the winter, if when, you know, hospitals usually have very high inpatient volumes with flu and so yeah. On. yeah, you know, Alan, we've always had a contingency plan for the flu to bring in more travelers if we need it. And I suspect um, we're already there with that plan. I mean, by way of um, trying to bring in registry now to cover our current openings, we should be okay. Um, I'm not so sure how bad the flu season will be. Last year it was minimal mm -hmm. um, because everybody was taking COVID precautions, and I think we're kind of in the same situation this year. Um, I, I, I question whether we're going to have a huge swing with the flu this year. Okay. I see Trustee Blue's hand is up. Yes, I had a couple of questions. In terms of registry use, are these local registries that we use, are they from out of state? And if they're from out of state or out of the area, do we end up paying for their travel, their hotel? Oh, Kimberly, you are nodding your head. Okay. Lorna, Lorna maybe you could shed some light on that. Yeah, I, we use a combination. So a trustee blue, and I will tell you that we, we do prefer to hire staff. Currently, we have 283 vacancies posted externally on our website. We have 135 unfulfilled orders through our regular Vizient um, service that we use. So that kind of just gives you an idea of what we're looking at and why we needed to engage a crisis staffing. We know that Kaiser is about to go on strike. Um, there's also the declination or the, excuse me, the COVID mandatory vaccination process, which is, um, you know, taking staff off the schedules at many different hospitals. And so they're, they're now trying to recoup by going to, you know, get additional resources like crisis staffing. So all these things compounded to make our issue with um, getting staff even a bigger you know, the, making the numbers go up exponentially. How many classifications are represented by this new uh, vital services contract? It's nursing. I don't think we encompassed anything else. Uh, I think it's just nursing at this time. The last time we looked at, in the HR committee at retention rates, nurses had a, a hard time staying, but we also looked at the salary survey and saw that we weren't necessarily as competitive. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. We've got work to do um, around retaining not only our nursing staff, but all of our staff, including leaders. And we're actively working on that. Um, so, you know, we're not there yet today, but we'll get there. 
I mean, if we put the 7.5 million into nurse salaries, I bet we would have people running. They would leave Kaiser and come directly to AHS. <laughs> they would leave Stanford because we'd be the highest payers and we would have a stable workforce. I think it's a different investment to talk about the short term, long term, medium term. If we have a true goal of making sure that our staffing is stable, we should make the long term investment today. It's it's been a while since I've been in the nursing stuff, but I don't think I don't think we have as many new grads coming out. I mean, I don't know if programs have been eliminated, um, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if there's two year programs anymore for RNs. There's two years, one years and four years. Yeah. They're still pumping them out. They're still pumping. Yeah. Yeah. COVID has had an impact, but it's not over. Graduate people are still graduating, but we're talking about experienced nurses with this. Right. Right. We're trying to attack, attract experienced nurses. You know, I think that's tough. I'm just saying. Okay. When I first started in nursing, there was a shortage. Yeah. And um, San Francisco General took me in. The private hospitals wouldn't take me because I didn't have experience. It's extremely hard to recruit and find the real tight specialty nurses. Um, Those are the areas that we really have difficulty with right now. All organizations have difficulty with right now. Mm-hmm. And so this is really, you know, in my mind, a short-term measure to make sure we can fill our staffing gaps for our staff, um, while at the same time considering what we what we need to do medium and long-term. I feel like it's a similar question that we had about attracting specialty docs, and we talked about solving the problem with money then. Can I say something, Trustee Esteen? Please. So I think it, I think you're correct that we do have work to do about retention and attracting talent. There's no doubt. Um, but with the current level of shortages in nursing in the areas that Mark identified, I, I don't think we have the ability to do run a campaign to attract that kind of talent in the short term because we're competing against not only out of state huge um, for-profit and um, you know healthcare systems but we're competing right here in Oakland yeah and so I think long term we are looking for new grad programs and also to um, you know what other types of things we could do to enrich our benefit packets to attract people I think I've told you and I will be telling you more later this month about uh, loan forgiveness programs that we're um, we're looking at where there's a matching um, a matching component. I've already met with the foundation about helping me secure the funds for that. Um, we are doing a lot of things within HR to increase the benefits we offer to make us more attractive to prospective candidates. Um, but right now we're kind of in a dire situation to the point of which, you know, like I said, we um, we have 135 requests in currently with Vizient for nursing staff that have gone unanswered and unfilled because we're competing again. We're competing against HCA and other large employers that are offering, um, you know, traveling nurses $5,000 for sign-on bonuses, and we just can't compete. 
Um, and so this crisis staffing at least will ensure another, you know, road for us to secure staff. Um, I don't think we'll, we'll spend, you know, anywhere near where, you know, the limits of the contract. We just need to be able to get another fresh avenue to get staff in because obviously our efforts with Vizient haven't been successful. So is, are we expecting that this new contractor will offer something more handsome to match what the other contract agencies are offering? It's a crisis staffing rate, so it's a little bit higher. Um, and um, they have, you know, some of the agencies, they're kind of, uh, I hate to say it, but pilfering from each other, stealing staff. Um, and they're also um, going to try to ensure that our staff stay for the contract term because another industry thing that's happening is staff are signing up for to go to a different state for and work at a health system and then they're leaving halfway through the contract because of the sign-on bonuses to go somewhere else. So um, we just don't want to limit ourselves to this one, to our one vendor management system. We need to, you know, broaden our horizons. Right, right. Yeah, I imagine if you took like, you know, half of this 7.5 million and put it into attracting, retaining, recruiting, you know, like big bonuses, um, advertising, marketing, I think it could yield impressive results. I would love to see what that looks like in the short term. A new plan, a plan to, you know, attract nurses that stay. Yes, well, we are putting together a plan and I encourage you to have input because you're part of my committee. And so we really do, we do have a lot of ideas for, um, you know, attracting nurses. And like I said, we're looking at, you know, also tuition enhancing tuition reimbursement, which they already have. I know SEIU is going to be doing some work around this and increasing their benefits through the education fund. But we want to do something like that. We want to look at loan forgiveness for those nurses who had to take out loans. We have a lot of ideas. We're looking at also a coaching service that will do like executive coaching and do long-term career planning for staff. So we are looking to do extra additional benefits that will be attractive to candidates. Yeah, mentoring. I mean, you know, we don't have to go to the foundation if we have 7.5 million, but we do have a motion on the floor and the debate is rich. I think staffing and recruitment and retention is difficult um, no matter what. And if we had deeper pockets, we could do all sorts of things. Uh, Rana, can we have a roll call vote? Absolutely. Trustee Blue. Aye. Trustee Esteen. Aye. Trustee Fox. <laughs> I, I saw him say Aye. There you are. And Trustee Friedman. Aye. The motion passes. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this takes us to the final portion of our agenda uh, where we think about the other things that we need to continue following up on, committee planning issues. Um, I would love to hear more about our recruitment and retention efforts and see how that might be approached fiscally. Do any other trustees have questions about uh, things they'd like to hear? Trustee Fox, do you have any suggestions for future meetings? Um, well, I think possibly at some time uh, a report on employee benefits, and what, what the benefits are that we offer, what it costs. Um, and I think that ties in a little bit to what 
Trustee Esteen is talking about retention. Uh, I'm interested both in that. I'm interested in that. I'm also interested in how much we're paying for for benefits and if we have any long-term plan to to lower the cost of benefits without necessarily, you know, uh, risking the stability of our staff. But there are ways to lower our cost of benefits. How often we look at alternative vendors. And then probably maybe a little in, as part of that, maybe a little bit more about workers' comp and what our history is and um, what our losses have been, number of, you know, what the trends are, I guess I should say, and the number of, of workers' comp claims we have from our, from our workforce and the cost of those claims and, you know, how we're managing that over time. Is it getting better or getting worse? Thank you for those. Trustee Blue, Trustee Friedman. Um, I'm interested in uh, getting a report about in some detail about the uh, employees who uh, are not vaccinated and don't want to get vaccinated and what the implications are for our workforce and finances for uh, them not meeting the mandate and us having to backfill those positions. It relates to our previous discussion, clearly. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Trustee Blue? Um, I guess for the HR committee that we should really go deeper into how we recruit and retain, right? Because there's salaries, there's benefits, but I think there's other things that we can also do. We're a trauma center. New grads ought to love coming to us because they get that experience that they won't get in a private hospital. The problem is trying to keep them, right? That we got to match salaries and we have to at least match benefits minimally, right? Um, but we should dig deeper into that because I am worried. And do we have LDNs? And are they on inpatient or are they totally eliminated? Uh, um Trustee Blue, I don't believe there's any LVNs on the inpatient unit. I believe if they're uh, units, if they're utilized, it's in the outpatient setting. Okay. And does the SEIU Education Fund, do they have a program for moving LVNs into a registered nurse program? Is there anything like that? Do we know? I think it's pretty open-ended with the education fund, but I'm not an expert on it. All right. Because that was actually done many, many moons ago, right? It was a way to try to recruit more uh, nurses of color mm -hmm. and to bring LVNs along and make them become RNs. And it was called the 2020 program. The hospital paid 20 hours for them or 40 hours of work, but they work less so that they can go to school but it was a 2020 program and we increased the rn staff at san francisco general mm -hmm. right and then i know rns are really touching about having lvns out on the floors right but at some point i worked with great lvns in icu and on the med surge force Right, and at some point, we're going to have to take a look at that. You know, about a staffing mix. 
And I know RNs are wiggy about that, but they're going to get wiggy if they put their license on the line because there's not enough of them, right? And putting patient care on the line because there's not enough RNs. So I'm just saying, we just really got to dig in. But LVNs are a lost resource that could work on the floors, you know, with the right, um, you know, with the right training and the right oversight. I think to that end, uh, Trustee Blue, I would love to see a compilation, and this might be appropriate for the HR committee, mm -hmm. uh, uh, how often units are working at the the state mandated staffing mix or short staffed how often we're in compliance or out of compliance i would say i'm just guessing here but i would say on the med surge floors we're probably not in compliance i hope not yeah and i say i i say that because in a county hospital Patients that are usually in an ICU in the private sector at the county, they're on a med surge floor because that's how skilled our RNs and nursing staff are, right? Now, I may be wrong, but I suspect that's the same. The acuity has definitely shifted. Yeah. Yeah. People are saying. Right. right. And then just the whole image of working for a county hospital. It's poor patients. It's you know the whole nine yards. Yeah, but this is this is why we're here. We're here to make sure that yeah. the image and the the perception matches reality, and that the reality is better than that. That's right. We're caring, so, healing, mm -hmm. teaching, serving mm -hmm. all, and we're doing it well. All right. Thank you all very much. And uh, Ronna, were you able to catch all of that? I sure was. Okay. Excellent. Thanks very much. Everybody have a wonderful night. We will see you next week at our full board meeting.